Whether it's digital or analog design that keeps you busy, today it's all about the experience. This is Experience by Design, a podcast exploring the latest trends and solutions helping create the most intriguing experiences you can imagine and the ones you can't. Hosted by Brian Mazaros. Welcome to another episode of the Experience by Design podcast. I'm your host, Brian Mazaros, and today my guest is Bruce Bartelt, Chief Innovation Officer at Little and also Chairman of Shop Association. An experienced design thinker and senior leader for over 30 years, Bruce's role as Chief Innovation Officer aims to maximize the impact of Little's diverse, multidisciplined resources. While his role is to provide guidance and strategic input for the company's centralized consulting specialties, he also impacts all practices nationwide with strategy, experience design, problem definition, brand strategy, and business consulting services. Bruce has worked with notable brands like Bank of America, Dick's Sporting Goods, Marriott Corp, Shinola, Nautica, Lucky Brand, Whole Foods, Pacific Theaters, and Guess. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Bruce to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, hi, Brian. Thanks very much. Wish I could live up to all those wonderful things you said about me. Ah, uh, we have plenty of plenty of opportunities to uh, to prove that. <laughs> thank yeah. you, thank you for joining. Always, uh, it's always great to catch up with you. It's been a while, but yeah. um, nice, uh, nice to you to catch up. Unfortunately, I, I I wish I could have made my way down to Charlotte this year. Yeah, actually, I'm 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 stuck up in Davidson due to the uh, spike in the pandemic. Um, but I, yeah, I live north of Charlotte on Lake Norman. Oh, so you're still on the outskirts. Okay. Mm-hmm. About thirty miles north. Oh, that's not too bad. Well, it's a good college town. Sure is. The home of Steph Curry. Uh huh. It's good. Good college roots right there. Yeah. Um. So if you can, I guess you know where to start. I mean, if you could talk a little bit about Little and you know a little bit of the evolution of your role because I, I i i've known you i mean we've you know we've known each other for a while but i know this role is has evolved over time and so i'm curious to hear a little bit more about the role and and, and where little has evolved to sure sure well little um started in uh charlotte north carolina in 1964 by bill little william b little and uh in fact when i speak um publicly abroad um and the interpreter says, Bruce Bartell from Little, everybody starts giggling. And I have to let people know that Little is a man's name, not, not an adjective. Um, so when I joined um, in the early 90s, 92, uh, Little was about 65 people. And, you know, we were poised to make that 90, 1990s economic boom run uh, in that uh, we were kind of an unknown um, a best kept secret kind of firm. Although we had been around for a long time, we really weren't known for design um, or design of a higher quality. And so um, our CEO, then Phil Kuttner, um, wanted to change that. And so I and several other people were brought on board to help him shift the firm towards being known um, primarily as a design firm. So my roots are in architectural design, and I did that for several years as the company's uh, design director. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter was, is um, I wasn't getting to where I wanted to go um, in terms of increasing the quality of design or the frequency of quality design. And I complained that, you know, I can only do so much with when we have clients that don't care about design. And I said, the only way we could really change that is we need to attract 
uh, companies that care deeply about design as a critical factor. And uh, so he said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, well, let me be part of the business development um, engine and let me be part of the presentations to sell the, the value of design. And so the next thing you know, um, I'm out there winning work. And uh, you know what happens when you become a rainmaker, they put you in charge. And so I moved out of the design studio and started um, our retail uh, restaurants and food service group. Um, we were doing restaurants and grocery stores. And um, I eventually um, became the uh, leader of the retail practice um, and did that for 20 years. And one of the things that we were known for in the 80s and 90s was primarily shopping center design. And I really thought that that needed to stop because uh, you can build only so many brick shopping centers before they all look the same. And we really weren't doing enough to uh, drive what really drives retail, which is the in-store um, design. Um, now what we call the in-store experience. And uh, so I developed a series of teams that got inside the store, uh, basically uh, where, where retail happens. Um, and that flourished over the course of the uh, 2000s leading up to the end of uh, the 2010s. And uh, I saw, Brian, that, that, that you know, the world was changing uh, before our very eyes, that retail was changing dramatically. Uh, while I felt like that could be an excellent way for me to close out my career, why not step aside and let somebody take the reins during the change rather than me usher in the change and then somebody take charge uh, after I left. So I literally gave up my position with a purpose. Um, and um, I looked around the company and saw where we had opportunities for improvement and opportunities for us to accelerate our path towards uh, being known as a company uh, known for break, breakthrough thinking. And I made a proposal to um, basically run uh, an area of our company called Catalyst. And Catalyst was intended to be a code word for a catalyst for rapid change. And um, that's when I became uh, the chief innovation officer. And I've been at that for about two years. I would say in closing um, to anyone who is young that, that's listening and uh, or earlier on in your career, choose to uh, change your pay, change your destination or your pace um, at several points in your career. I've, I don't think that we realize that when we get good at something, we actually start to slow down in our rate of growth or slow down in our rate of learning um, until you become good at something. And so you have to put the white belt back on and start anew. And I've never learned as much as when I was a neophyte or as much as I uh, didn't know just how much I didn't know until I started over. And so that's why I did what I did, to wake, to wake up and uh, enjoy my uh, tour's end uh, of my career on a, uh, on a highlight. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it's good advice, too, because I, I do think there's something we said about being complacent. Yeah, you get kind of lulled. Yeah, I, mean, I think you, you do need to challenge yourself. Um, I mean, how do you, I mean, it's a very interesting time that, you know, obviously we're, we're all in because I think we're all challenged with, with finding new solutions and, and solving problems. I mean, how do you, I mean, I guess you were sort of on that trajectory prior to this, what we're in now, but do you, do you find yourself in even more challenged with, with what's happening going on now and, and how does that set up for, for 2021? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, you you can find irony if you're looking for it, and then sometimes irony just sets itself down in front of you, and 
smiles at you. I, I didn't intend, uh, I didn't intend to uh, change my career um, and then have the the the, the change that occurred, uh, the uh, the disruptor of probably five generations. You know. I'll get thrown in in front of me, uh, but what a great coincidence! Of course, I didn't um, realize that when we were go- heading into recession, that having moved out of a position over the largest, if not the most profitable group in our company, to to find myself in a position of overhead, I uh, wouldn't have done that, right? If I had if I had yeah. to choose yeah. to not go into an overhead <laughs> position, I probably would have stayed as the practice leader. So there's that irony, um, you know. I think it's it's just I, I hate to say sound uh, insensitive because a lot of people are struggling businesses and personally, but I really do think that this is a fantastic time. Um, it's just a fantastic time to be a creative because you you ordinarily or under normal circumstances don't have to change. You don't have to you know shift or pivot or or transform uh, when things are all all systems go. Um, but I'm in a transformative position and I think transformatively and now it's transformations abound everywhere you look, there has to be transformations. And so it's a really a great time to be a creative because there's so many problems that need so many solutions, um, and, and sweeping ones at that. I don't mean to be speaking to the tedious ones. I'm talking about massive culture change, massive mm-hmm. changes to how we, uh, look out, uh, across the horizon of our lives. And so, um, I, you know, I wasn't prepared, but I guess I was super prepared. Do you think it's a little bit different though? this? I mean, cause I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's always, you know, he's kind of facing that situation of, of, you know, change and, 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 it stirs the creative juices. Do you think there's a little bit of a of difference now to where um, there's an openness to experimentation with that creativity where in the past, you know, maybe there was more creativity, but there was a calculated risk to it. But now it seems perhaps maybe it's a little bit less that people are, are and the audiences and, and who you design for are open to those experiments. Well, it's a, it's a good question. And I believe it's fairly open-ended. So I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a attack at it uh, with it's like a pendulum swinging um, the way uh, we culture business kind of swings between classical forms of process and method um, and then the unanticipated um, very uh, almost um, paradigm shift kind of sh- uh, changes that occur in business. I, I don't think that we are in a period of necessarily uh, uh, brand new uh, methods, brand new ways of creative problem solving. Um, but I think there have been times in the past where there's just been this wake up call. Some of it's generational. Um, some of it's the convergence of technologies and uh, social change. Um, but I think back to the skunk works um, of uh, Lockheed and how they kind of set creative process or problem solving, problem seeking methodologies on its ear uh, by this sort of um, hot bed of uh, uh, invention. I think back to the uh, Palo Alto Research Center from Xerox, you know, they, they created the first GUI mouse enabled computer in 1973. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the proper time for it, obviously. It took another 10 years for people to 
catch on to the need for that. Um, and, and throughout the ages, um, we may be at um, a point where it's not a little shift. I think we may be more on the verge of a larger paradigm shift than uh, those smaller shifts of the 50s and 60s. Uh, I also remember the social awakening that was occurring in the late 60s, uh, you know, since I lived through it, um, is similar to what's happening now, the sort of uh, social unrest um, that's been put in a pressure cooker due to the pandemic, uh, political uh, clashing. You know, this, this has happened before. Um, so the cycle back and forth, back and forth. I think uh, we live in an age now because we have access to so much information um, literally at our fingertips that things are shift back and forth rather swiftly. As a matter of fact, I'd say that, that the pendulum swinging so fast back at me, it's like a tuning fork. It's just vibrating with change, constant change. Um, and you have to almost use a strobe light to see that there's anything changing. No, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good analogy. No, yeah, I, I call it dualities. You know, you have, you have this rapid, rapid pace of change and the ability to live in a virtual world, almost immersed completely in a virtual world all the time. Yet, the next generation who are digital natives um, would rather have experiences in real gritty places. They'd rather not, you know, be immersed in a, a VR bath. Um, so there's a duality. You know, you have this, both things are happening at the same time. Both are, both are perfectly relevant. Um, it's not either or, it's and, and you flip and toggle between the two all the time. And so this, again, is a, it's an it's a almost mesmerizingly wonderful time to be alive. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I think that we do have a generation change now that is much more open to um, what I called open source, uh, more open ported uh you know, open mind, let me just leave it at that, such that we have um, this cool mashup and, hybr of, and hybridity, actually, I think we'll come up in a conversation further as we talk, this uh, hybridity of, of workspace, play space, entertainment space, learning space, um, you know, is it retail space? Is it, is it you know, it, it's, it's because of that open mind and, and because of there's so many options. Why have one or the other? Why can't I have both um, or all? Um, it's pretty it's it's pretty cool, but I think it's fundamentally different than the kind of phase changes that we've had throughout the you know previous hundred generations where one paradigm would destroy the previous one and the new paradigm would take off. The creative destruction model isn't necessarily as destructive when you consider how much is mashed up right now and might be it may be enduring. Do you, do you think with that happening and that and that shift, you know, do, do you think this sort of challenges the mindset of, of what's authentic? I mean, do, do you think that kind of struggles? Because it, it kind of seems that I mean we are I mean to what degree are we chasing authenticity, I guess is is, is my question with with everything that's changing, I mean, it, does it does it exist? Do we lose sight of it? Um, that's a great. It's a great great question. I think that perhaps uh, the philosophers can postulate that, and and maybe some book tours and TED talks can come out of that. No, really. I mean, because no, it's true. It's I mean, true. I I my axiom is, so you say you want to be authentic. Yeah. Well, just by saying it, you're already halfway back to being pretentious. 
authentic authentic doesn't come with a um, with a predetermined purpose. It comes through the rear view mirror, not through the front windshield. You can only be authentic. You can't plan authenticity. Um, and uh, you know that that that's just it. Uh, maybe it's authenticity, right? I, I, um, I think it's that. But, but my other, my other theory too is, is that when you you say it. And then also when you wear a t-shirt that says I'm authentic, then I, I feel right there. Yeah, the, right. The, the <laughs> Once it yeah. makes its way to a t-shirt. Then, right. Uh, sort, then of, sort of Forrest, Forrest Gump with the mud on his face, right? Um, have a nice day. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think that there are elements of authenticity of just uh, being. Um, I, I, look, uh, it it's... You know, a real gritty Dumbo Street in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, it's been there for a hundred and some odd years. It's 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 real. There's real people that live there. It's not just a you know a photo op uh, for some um, model. Uh, it's when it starts to get copied. And uh, can you make it authentic like Dumbo <laughs> or Park Slope? I mean, at that point, you really you you missed the point. Um, I've often you know, I asked our designers um, or encouraged our designers to say, you know, look deeply into the place that you're building and find, if not extract from it, some sense of the reality that's there. You know, I mean, don't make up some false narrative um, and don't pump up some lame narrative like, well, there was an arrowhead we found when we were excavating the site. And now we're going to turn this into the Indian village. You know, don't 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 make don't make stuff up. Um, if you cannot find a story that is um, embedded in the place or embedded in the time that um, you're building or, or designing for, then it's okay for you to create a story anew or to give a story to the place, right? That's not false if, it, if, if it's just a spontaneous act of creation. Um, you know, what, what would what might inspire you? Is there something about the, the, the terrain or, or is there something about the people that you're designing it for that can become the, the seed of an idea for an authentic story? Um, and then that breathes life into the creation of something. Now, is that something perfectly innovative, like it's never been seen before? Nah. What authenticity is? In fact, I think most people like authentic, authentic places or, or they label them authentic places because they do have bumps, zits, uh, cracks, you know, things that add character and show some sense of humanity. If memory serves me right, the, the office that you guys have in Raleigh is part of the old um, tobacco plantation. Yeah, American that tobacco. Yeah. That was reclaimed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... It, I think that there's a certain amount of head scratching because at the same time, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, so you've, you put your designer studio in an old warehouse. So oh, that's a first. Uh, you know, it's not. You know, it's been that way since um, at least when the movie, uh, the TV show 30 something was on. All of us um, boomers got, you know, inspired to put all of our studios in old warehouses. But uh, what I think is really ironic is all the political correctness that we have now. And there's this big lucky strike water tower staring you down, right? You know, thank you for smoking. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of the Durham lore is it's a, it's a tobacco town. Um, and it's, it was well done. I mean, it, it, it is a good place to convene. It is a good people place. It has all the right features of uh, mixed use that, uh, that drive traffic, drive vitality. So, 
Yeah, and uh, where we are located in Charlotte now is um, it's in a new um, shiny office building, but we did look to create an office that sort of celebrated the, the sort of components and layers uh, that create architectural space. Um, so you, you'll you see exposed steel and the layers of structure that you know are the substrate behind the finishes and sort of it reveals itself um, uh, very, um, very uh, uh, playfully. Um, you don't you don't necessarily know that it's happening until you're told, but it does give form and character to the space. Um, and there's a certain authenticity of exposing and revealing rather than concealing and hiding systems. Um, so, along the same lines. So switching gears a little bit, I'm I'm curious. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, past conversations I've had with other other agencies and, and designers, you know, it's 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 been refreshing to get opinions on just on different segments. And and I'm was kind of really curious to to dive in or talk a little bit around grocery. Um, you know, I think that was that's that's one area where I think you know I, I don't use the word authenticity, um, but I, I think there's something we said about those environments and how they've changed. And so I'm I'm curious to chat with you a little bit about. About grocery, obviously, it's it's been something that uh, a lot of us have relied on heavily this year, um, <laughs> some for convenience and um, and so. But there's been this huge shift with it. I think over over time. I mean, just recently, as as, as well, even before um, you know we were getting into this period, and you know, a change of purpose. You know, I think some going there to obviously the shops, some going there to dine. You know, um, Whole Foods or, or um, you know, some uh, like in like an Italy even um, that you, I guess you can put into that category. Um, I mean, what have you seen as some interesting shifts on on the grocery side? Well, um, you know, I have to start with a, a little backstory. My my dad uh, grew up in Queens, um, in New York, and um, he was a a runner for the local market. You know, back in the you know, back in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and prior, um, you didn't do uh, your own grocery shopping. You walked up to the proprietor and you gave them a list and they pulled together your order and either they delivered it to you or they bagged it up for you and you walked out with it. This whole idea of the automat, which became the supermarket, um, uh, talk about a shift, right? Uh, that you you mean I could pick out my own food was pretty radical. Um, most people did not buy um, product that was mass produced and mass marketed. You know, you know the old story that the uh, the, the Quaker Oats man there there wasn't a Quaker Oats man. They just wanted to create a trusty, you know, wholesome looking guy that you can trust buying your oats from because otherwise, previously you bought it from the guy down the street. This is a famous Malcolm Gladwell line. Um, so the shift that we're going through now is, yeah, I, I guess kind of radical. Um, you know, the, the idea that, um, there's two things going on. One is the idea that, um, millennials and Gen Z's, they don't eat with the same, uh, meal plan that, uh, previous generations did. They, they healthy snack, uh, five to seven small, um, snacks basically, uh, throughout the day. So they're, the whole idea of grocery shopping um, has 
really stopped, you know, at least until the time that they settle down and have kids. That's that seems to be their way. And, and quite frankly, the nuclear family, everybody at the table, it just doesn't work anymore. Um, and I don't think there is actually a, a nostalgic need for it because there's different ways that families are are gathering, not necessarily better or worse. So if you change the way people are buying um, and then simultaneously on top of that, uh, are seeking experiences such that I don't really want to stand around in my kitchen and drink wine with my friends while we prepare a meal. I'd rather us just go out um, and pay for the ambiance that somebody else came up with. And it gives me a lot more variety. I can, you know, again, uh, mash up with uh, different groups of people in different places and spaces. And it becomes more distinctive memories um, than, you know, again, I'm having two friends over to my house and we're standing around the counter making a meal. Um, so that's a, that's a significant change. Then you throw a pandemic at it where people are becoming comfortable buying things online and having them delivered or drive-by pickup. Um, and you start to say, whoa, it's not just the theaters that are going to go under. You'd think the grocery store is going to go under because that's a lot of, that's a lot of square footage for stuff that could otherwise be in a cheap warehouse with a loading dock. Or is the grocery store actually just becoming a cheap loading dock or a cheap warehouse for the loading dock? Some would say it might. I, I'm not certain. And I don't want to be here to assert that this is what's going to happen. Because uh, while I think it's possible for grocers to shrink the infield and put all the commodity-oriented stuff in the warehouse and fulfill that um, you know, directly to your door um, and then collapse the perimeter condition into a, a much more experienced laden, uh, fresh, freshly prepared and fresh to purchase, um, much smaller store. Uh, while I think that can happen and everybody can start drawing the store of the future and, and have a lot of fun with it, that may not happen because even though we are resilient, um, we still don't necessarily like to have radical change overnight. Um, and so I don't I don't want to place a bet on that store, the grocery store of the future becoming um, um, an, an eatery or an experience center um, because there's a lot of habits. You know, people have habits and even rituals. I still think that it's going to take a generation for some of that to sort of work itself through. No, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's it's it is interesting to see the, the different models that are that are out there. I mean, you, you, you talk about the warehouse. I think about the, the German grocers like little. You know, it's basically it's it's a nicely designed warehouse, but things are Thank in boxes. Thank you. We designed it. It's it's great. I do. I do. There's one uh, around the corner from me. And uh, which one do you have? Do you have the the slope roof or the arc roof? I have the slope roof. Okay. But it, I, I think there's another. There's a couple that have been popping up around here. A lot of growth I've seen in the Northeast. Um, we did we the did slope. the arc roof uh, design back in probably 2017, maybe 2016. And, and it was the first one they did. And then uh, uh, we moved on and uh, another firm picked it up and they value engineered the living daylights out of it. And they went with the flat roof one. Then they decided, yuck, we hate that. Let's go back to the arc roof one. And I've seen that been popping up all over the uh, Southeast. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're them. And though they don't like to be compared at all to Aldi, um, there's, there are similarities perhaps um, in scale. Um, they're picking up in popularity. I think that while uh, Tesla's, uh, what was it, fresh and easy, uh, just did not work because it was a European a European consumer model in terms of prepackaged fresh foods that people are like, yeah, I'm not going to buy uh, grapes under shrink wrap. I'm not going to buy green peppers that are shrink wrapped. 
Uh, a lot of the things that work in Europe or Western Europe um, were not working in Southern California, that's for sure. I don't think that's the case for Aldi and Lidl. Um, while they do have kind of a some weird, almost kooky merchandising uh, and merchandise offerings, there is a sort of Trader Joe's-esque kind of surprise uh, to the market. Uh, that you're not going to see everything standardized all the time, other than perhaps maybe two, three quarters of their uh, array is standardized and a quarter of it becomes seasonal or um, more uh, more uh, outside of the U.S. consumer uh, buying pattern. So it becomes surprising ethnic um, as well. So I, I think that will continue to grow. Um, but one thing that you hinted at was, you know, pandemic and post-pandemic, you know, the grocery store has had become the meeting place of our towns because, you know, we didn't have as much set, except for our older towns, which were dying due to Walmart or bypass retail. Uh, there really wasn't a town center. Um, there, there wasn't a place for meeting, greet and see your neighbor. Um, the suburban model really kind of scattered us. And if there was ever a center point for us to regather, Believe it or not, it became the neighborhood grocery store. And that became even more important during the pandemic where you were like, I think that's my neighbor underneath that mask. Uh, but that's the glee and delight that people had in being able to get out of the house and see each other, put elevated importance on the grocery store. I don't think that, um, I, I, I'm not certain whether that's going to change forever or not, but it certainly opened our eyes to, hey, by the way, there is an opportunity here to create more of a town market you know, market hall for our town uh, feeling. You know, we did that with Harris Teeter back in the 90s, a sort of market hall prototype that had more of an open and, and a, a place to convene under a large uh, vaulted space. Um, and that took flight for several years, but um, whether it's due to, um, you know, the uniformity that happens with prototyping, just value engineering, uh, it went away. I think it could come back, especially when we start to look at models that um, start to create more um, of this hybrid eating hall and uh, food merchandising hall. Uh, the, the food hall is back, and I think this greater purpose when we start to think of it as more of a town hall. Yeah, I agree. That, that's that's one's kind of interesting to watch, um, and, and and see where that ends up going. Um, you know, the other the other format that's been interesting. I guess you can kind of rub it in there is more of the theatrical side. There's, I'm sure you've heard of it, Stu Leonard's mm-hmm. um, Open Paramus. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've yet to to had a chance to visit that one. Um, but uh, from well, it's got a lot re- going on. It has a lot going on. I mean, there 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 are animatronics. <laughs> there, it's uh, it is the the Disneyland of uh, of grocery. Um, from from what I've been from one that I've known that I've gone there. Um, yeah, it, but it, you know, um, there uh, it's very episodic. First of all, I mean, as as I've looked at the pictures on online and um, in the magazines, um, you know, it's like vignettes. Um, there isn't necessarily an overriding uh, sort of thread or harmony that sort of co- collects and connects it all. You know, you mentioned Italy. Well, Italy's in that beautiful, like vaulted marble-like space. I mean, it's that brings it all together, right? I don't think I am not seeing that with Stu Leonard's. I will say this about um, the most innovative grocery stores we've done here. I have to say, pale by comparison to what you see in um, Korea, in particular Asia. You know, 
in particular Seoul, um, the Shinsege and Lotte, uh, their, their grocery stores are exquisite. Um, I mean, I, I think it's partially due to the level of care, but there's a, a certain um, there's a certain finesse to the design that everything sort of pulls together while able while they're able to have a sense of personality for the different settings. So whether it's the sushi bar or whether it's the um, uh, you know olive bar or the nut the nuts aisle or the just the boxed foods, everything seems to have a real sense of of harmony. Um, different notes but in harmony. Um, I don't see that when I see this sort of episodic, chaotic, um, um, you know, sort of faux rustic uh, uh, farmer's market pastiche thing that Americans like to play with. Um, how, I will say, uh, and it sounds like I'm self-promoting a little, but we did a, a store for um, uh, a Japanese grocer in uh, Yorba Linda called Tokyo Central. And uh, I don't know if it, you've seen it published, but it has this real beautiful um, design to it. It has one of their little um, like scooter trucks um, as a, sort of sitting there in the market hall. But one of the things I, I, I want to point out is um, for an Asian community, particularly a Japanese community in Southern California, boy, do they ever need a town hall, right? Because they're strangers in a strange land. And they, where do they, what's their community center? Well, if their community center is Tokyo Central, the, the, the grocer, what kinds of activities can happen there? And so they have they have teaching, um, you know, community classes, whether it be for food or art or calligraphy. There's this act activation that occurs in the store that's almost like a community room alongside um, a, a, a grocery store that caters to their palate. So, I mean, again, I think that there's distinct ways that we can um, sort of create experiences within the store um, that aren't um, episodic. And when I say that, it does, I mean like Disney World episodic, like here's Main Street USA and everything's three quarter scale and trying to look like something that it isn't. Um, that's what I mean by episodic. Now, now here's the, here's where I, and the other side to it too, is you, you look at, and I, I have to you know, bring it up. I mean, you have, you have Amazon who has, who has moved into it, you know, obviously owning Whole Foods, but then they have their own series of to go stores and, and, and the grocery, uh, which they're opening one here in New Jersey. And, you know, there's a lot of technology into it. You know, I, I, I see, I, I like the, the shopping experience. Obviously, it's the checkout. Obviously, that's always the frustrating part. And so, you know, I love the technology there. But through the rest of it, I don't know. You know, I, 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 there is something about having those conversations with 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 people you know about, um, you know, talking to the butcher as you're ordering something. Uh, there's just something about that that just, like you said, I mean, just lends itself to that experience. But I mean, you can also see the other other side to it. It's convenience. It appeals to uh, a younger generation that has that expectation. Um, it, you know, where do you draw the line the be between? Is is there a line to be drawn? I mean, or is it just a, you know, the, does a brand or, you know, choose a brand meaning, you know, a grocery chain, do they choose a direction? We, we are going to go down this path and be known as 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 this, or do we, you know, choose a direction we're going to be known as this type of, of store? I, I get the feeling that they haven't reached their destination yet. I think that they are trying different things with the expectation of learning um, and then 
ultimately um, combining uh, ideas. Like for example, is it a coincidence that they're they're buying Whole Foods at the same time that they're playing with the Amazon Go concept? No, I'm certain that, you know they've got a strategy up their sleeve. Um, I I don't think we've seen the power of the Amazon grocery store, the Amazon Go. The, the the beacon or scanning technology that you know takes away the inconvenience of the checkout nah, that's small potatoes compared to what do you what happens when you're powering that customer with the same recommendation engine that they, that powers their Amazon website what happens when they're pushing to your device oh I see you bought these three ingredients you must be making this this is a great Chianti that goes with it I mean when you start to think about all the different ways that they can help develop and cultivate the sort of customer preference um, and predictive analytics that could drive uh, more value to the that, that shopping experience then the other grocers couldn't catch up fast enough I mean I, I there's, there's loyalty programs in all the grocery stores and yes they understand your buying habits but they never made the real time if they can make that real time and push it to your device um, or to your cart, um, then I think it could become uh, it could become more powerful. The problem that they have and or any deployment has, especially with the technology, is that it would be uh, clumsy or cute. Um, you know, don't gamify my shopping when I just want to get a gallon of milk and some cheese and get out of there. Um, so they have to find a way to you know, understand the shopper preferences and meet them where they want to be. Um, so anyway, I don't want to make predictions on what Amazon Grocery or Go is going to do, but I get the feeling that they're not really where they want to go yet. And they're, they're playing around with technologies to see what catches and what doesn't catch. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And you, you can obviously tell with to where they're, they're opening stores. Um, yeah, North Hollywood is a great target. It's, it's a it's a young demographic there and and I think where they're planning here in New Jersey on the grocery side as well as up north follows that and in that premise area oh so, is that where it's going I think that's where it's going it's it's oh you know it's either going there it's going around um short I actually actually think more short hills, hills. yeah that's yeah that's a land. bit more affluent um yeah and I think you probably have a tighter nest of uh young affluence there than uh Paramus. yeah I think you think, think county yeah so it's going to be interesting. I mean, a lot of obviously a lot of insights that they'll they'll gain from it. But I, I agree. I don't think we've really seen um, their full their full hand at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's interesting. I, I, I you know the one part I do I do like, and I, and I think I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I, if I can interpret it, is that there's still a, a very much of a level playing ground in terms of of design with grocery. Um, sea of which, sameness. Sorry. A sea of sameness. Sea of sameness. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that. There's always been a sort of herd mentality um, in uh, consumer uh, marketplaces. I mean, you know, the look look what Macy's is doing, look what Gimbal's is doing, and they start copying each other. Next thing you know, where's the differentiation? Grocery stores have been um, prey to that for some time since the A and P uh, days, um, where that model works and everybody copies it. Um, you know, I, I'd love to see that there be transformation in the grocery store space. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, either next gen or technology or pandemic uh, collide to become enough of a catalyst for change. Um, but it is a very, it's a very tight margin business. There's not a lot of room for, um, you know, 
big plays that could flop um, when they're already in such t such tight margins. The food you know food industry. So uh, these smaller experiments, great. Um, I'd love it if the grocery store would start to think about um, 90% of what you see here is going to be standard for all you people that like things not change. But over here, we're going to play and it's going to change. It's going to be more um, evolving and uh, we're going to co-create it together. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see, you know, whether it's the floral department or this idea of there being an in-store market hall where there's a combination of eating and socialization. Um, uh, I, I say all that, and some listeners are probably going to say, are you kidding? In a post-COVID world, people aren't going to socialize. But really, I mean, I don't mean to be preachy, but we're going to get a vaccine, and we're, we're going to get back to being around each other just soon enough. What about this thought, though? I mean, it, it, it's, it's and this is maybe a sort of a crossover. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about shopping centers and malls. And, you know, there, even before the, the pandemic, I mean, you're going through a lot of closures of anchor tenants. And so, you know, there's been a bit of a conversation about grocery stores filling that void. You know, of course, I, you know, some of the other side too, where Amazon has talked about buying some of that as real estate as well. But I don't know, this, I mean, it, it, depending on the format, I mean, that could be an interesting shift too in, on the retail side in, in shopping stores to where the anchor store is no longer a JCPenney's. It is a, you know, a new form of an Ely or... Wegmans, I, you know, something, something, I mean, it, that could be an interesting change too. The square footage is huge, but. Um. Well, I, you know, again, you can't, don't want to make predictions as to the, the, the demise of anything, but uh, again, it's been a long time coming. Um, and I've been an Amazon customer since 98. Um, and you say, what, you're in charge of brick and mortar retail for a design company and you buy online? It's blasphemy. But you have to, you know, you have to in this day and age, know your know your enemy, so to speak. Know, know what's going on in the world that could deteriorate your, your world. There, there is and there can be uh, both. And, and we know that. Uh, it's not going to be either or. But the shift from retail brick and mortar being the primary way of shopping to online being your primary way of shopping, I think that, that that evolution, that pendulum has been swinging for 20 years. Uh, yes, it just got a nice nudge uh, to be pushed further with the pandemic, and it, it's likely not going to return. So are, do we need these big regional malls anymore? Um, do, you know, and by the way, the ones that are left, uh, I mean, they're unsafe. I mean, I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the kinds of people that are, um, causing this violence in our little suburban malls. And I, I'm not surprised if that was to be the case um, in many places around the country, if not the world. Places of congregation are, um, you know, a terror threat. Um, so all that negative stuff said, where does it live? Um, we did a project, actually, it was more of a, a rethink project called AIR, uh, the pop-up park. Um, and it was won a couple of awards and the idea was is that let's reclaim some of these mall properties or some of these um, urban properties that have become destitute um, and revitalize them with a pop-up um, venue that is co-created by the community that has local retailers and makers um, uh, that can convene for a period of time it, you know it could be a season it could be a month um, it could be uh, as short as a week, depending upon how big the installation is. But this idea that um, 
that retail has to change so quickly now because our expectations of change are, have become so advanced. Why was why would we want to create a permanent mall? Fashions change so quickly now. Um, we we think our world uh, view changes, you know, with the flip of a finger on an iPad. So to the extent that we want retail to become more dynamic and more fluid, uh, why would we want to build a big permanent mall? And so therefore. Um, is there such a thing as pop-up grocery? I mean, is there such a thing as a, a pop-up store like we have food trucks? Why wouldn't you have a boutique on wheels? Why wouldn't you have a park where you can pull up all these food trucks and merchandise trucks and, and have a, a, a happening, you know, where Saturday in the park takes on a new meaning? Um, so does, by the way, the retail that's on a truck right now is gray and has a, a white arrow and the blue words prime on the side of it. It's already in all of our neighborhoods, right? What happens if that becomes less of a box, you know, truck that's carrying boxes around, but a truck that's carrying merchandise around? And, and it would not be new, right? This was the nomadic retailer that would throw their carpet down on the Agora's uh, edge and, and, and start selling their wares at the merchant. Um, again, th there are opportunities for us to use cues from history to inform what could be happening now and permanence uh, may not be the thing. Now, can the grocery store become an anchor where there aren't uh, local tenants uh, like wings on the side of the grocery store? And are there places on our suburban and even exurban sites where we can create places for pop-up to occur spontaneously? Um, can we monetize that? I think I think so. And so we've had several developers, um, both locally and abroad, that are interested in, in um, you know, taking the idea of this air, the pop-up park, um, to to a new level. So, I, you know, again, what we were trying to do is play with the idea to see where to see where it takes us, you know, and is there an appetite in the marketplace for uh, thinking differently about how we build our retail? Um, and permanence has been the paradigm for you know several hundred years do you think that same mentality too because you i mean you also see saw a shift well have been seeing a shift from you know traditional mall form factor to lifestyle centers you know open air lifestyle centers out west and you know to where it's it's that mix it's it's a little bit less heavy on the retail a little bit more on, on the restaurants and and more like the pop-up you know coffee shops or container container type environments that that would appear um, right, box parts. Box uh, yeah, parts. box box parts is a good example of that. And and um, well, the only thing I would say in, in interjecting um, or intervening um, was the power center, uh, which was big. We built a lot of power centers for 25 years. Uh, we started to see well, those power centers uh, are very difficult for hang time. You go there for your big box, and then you're off the site. And so, like, well, you got the customer there. Can we do something for them to want to linger? Uh, and so we created these lifestyle centers, which were basically power centers with a nice little village and courtyard of little shops and restaurants and a fountain and kid holding a balloon. Uh, and then we have these uh, power uh, lifestyle centers that have programming, you know, for Fridays and Saturday nights and we even weekday nights. Then we have these mixed use power centers. Have you seen the mixed use power centers where the edges are uh, basically boxes? Um, uh, but then this, there's the main street with a you know, housing on top of it and parking decks to sort of densify the site. Those are all good. Um, unfortunately, uh, they're not very good from a planning standpoint. 
Um, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but why are we bulldozing former farms to put up these self-contained worldlets? Um, when in fact the town is sitting four miles away is sitting there waiting to be revitalized. I mean, how green is that? So uh, that's another thing I think we should just touch on is uh, millennial, next gen, thank God we have a couple of generations coming up that give a flip about the ecology, that give it a darn about sustainability and that they're demanding it from their retailer. I mean, I can't see how they could shop at a development that is destroying our landscape while letting the downtown that could be revitalized die, die further on the vine. That's not sustainable and we can't keep building that way. Uh, and they've given voice to the, you know, the notion that we, we're not planning our towns uh, with sustainability in mind, let alone the retailers themselves. They have to go green or else they're going to lose market share as this next generation becomes um, the top of the bell curve in terms of money to spend. No, I agree. It's, it's always, I mean, I, I, I share the same you know, enthusiasm, I think, with the next generation coming. Um, it's strange for me to say the next generation. I'm, I'm dating myself. It's, uh -huh. it's, it's funny how that happens, huh? Isn't it? How does, how does all of a sudden that happen? <laughs> where, where did that come from? Um, but it's but it's true. I, I, I think you know you do see the next shift and, and you see where that's going and it's, and the impact on the thinking. Um, but it's 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 great too because then you can see the continued evolution and hopefully, like you said, it, 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 there is that new thinking that doesn't go away and, and, and challenges what we think about different spaces and taking advantage of not letting um, Main Street or the High Street, um, you know, fade away, but just giving new new meaning to it. Right, and you know. Um... One of the things that it was the theme I brought up in the beginning is, you know, to, to pass the baton to, for the next generation to give it a try is a certain recognition that, you know, we give it we gave it our best. And there's certain things that we had done in our generation that that succeeded and certain things that have failed. And there's one there's one constant that things change. And uh, there's one uh, thing that you can always rely on is that things always stay the same. <laughs> and so here we go again. You know, the, the, we're going to be. Um, watching this next generation experiment. And that's lovely to see. Um, yes, there's going to be failures, uh, but out of that exploration, I think, um, you know, a generation will also grow up. So Agreed. what else? Uh, I don't know. I, th I think we, I think we've given, given a lot. Um, so, <laughs> um, but thank you very much. Um, it's, it's always a, a pleasure to, to chat with you. I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join me today. Um, if you can let everyone know just how they can find you to learn a little bit more about Little and um, everything else. Sure. Um, well, I d didn't touch on this before, but um, Little is very diversified in that we do um, workplace uh, a, a industry segment that's changing drastically, as you can imagine. Um, and workplace settings have as many dynamics now as the retail settings that we discussed at some length. Uh, we also are um, in our public sector, which does schools. Another part of uh, the economy that's changing is a public sector work. So that's college and university and uh, uh, town halls, uh, government, even correctional facilities. All this, all their worlds are changing as well. Can you imagine if it's possible uh, to imagine that online learning is something that's going to become the prevailing experience? 
Um, is it possible that you can get your degree online as a preferred approach? Um, yeah, that's that's changing the, their dynamic quite a bit. Uh, then we also have a healthcare group. Um, and so with the rise of telemedicine and advances in uh, um, biome biomechanics that are, are changing the way uh, we solve for disease, healthcare is changing drastically and dynamically as well. Um, so uh, if you look at the sort of whole of little um, with all these different areas of expertise, uh, what we seek to do is very similar to the notion uh, we're talking about in general, uh, which is hybrid. What we can learn from retail, we can apply to healthcare. We've been designing uh, concentras for now over 12, 15 years. They came to us not because of our healthcare experience, they came to us because we knew how to design for customer experiences, retail customer experiences. Uh, treat the patient more like a customer and their experience is gonna go from nervous and anxious to Ah, relief, you know, create more of a spa for them rather than a clinic. Um, and vice versa, you know, uh, what can we learn from uh, our community group that does student dormitories that we can apply to work that we're doing for Element Hotel, where they have these sort of suites that uh, people come and, and take down four rooms that are uh, surrounding a commune um, that's more like a college dorm. So this idea of sort of transforming our approach because of the different um, level areas of expertise and mixing them up um, is the spoon that um, I chose to put in my hand was just try and mix uh, our teams, the multidisciplinary team. And the way that we do that is through our consulting specialties. So we have uh, beyond engineering and land, land development services, we have a brand communication and design group we have an experienced design group. We have a smart building studio. We have a digital imaging AR VR group called Skyscraper. Uh, we have an advanced building technology group and our center for building performance. These consulting specialties um, are that sort of odd voice in the multidisciplinary uh, brainstorm room that doesn't that don't necessarily think of architecture first, they might think about a graphical or a digital touch point first. Um, and that enriches the dialogue uh, that leads to disruption and that leads to innovation. So um, I continue to look for opportunities to expand and, and uh, Im improve the diversity of specialized services. The thing that, and I'll close on this, the thing that we've found is that we really aren't designing buildings, we're solving problems and a building solution is part of solving that problem. But we also find that, you know, in rebranding a, a company or repositioning their uh, brand strategy, um, they're becoming, um, that we're having to transform um, the way they go about doing their business. You know, if they're if their customers are changing, then they have to change. If they have to change, we have to find new ways of helping them. So in large, by and large, our visioning sessions really are more business strategy um, than they are, how are we going to design your building? Um, how are we going to design your business? And so that has really become more of a, you know, a broader uh, context to what we can design. Um, and I'll make the analogy, you might remember Arthur Anderson, the accountant, one of the big six accountants back in the 70s. Um, well, Anderson realized that they were the people that had the numbers and the financial, you know, 
numbers for doing, doing their accounting. Well, what can those numbers tell uh, in terms of how can that inform them making better business decisions? And so they realized they had the ability to make recommendations on how the companies run their business based upon analyzing their numbers. And that became Anderson Consulting. And so they go through the 80s and uh, they're starting to make more money on the consulting side than they were from the audits and tax side, right? So thus they see the opportunity to upstream uh, further strategic level with their companies and hence you have Accenture. That's the transformation that Little is going through or has gone through um, is that we're finding uh, we're the keeper of their building data. We're the keeper of their facilities needs. But with that comes a whole host of insights about how they do their work and how we can increase productivity or improve their learning, how we can increase sales, et cetera. So um, that has been um, you know, the focus of our, our company for the last decade or so. And it's been an exciting time to, to be involved. So you can find us at littleonline.com, uh, little online one word, and uh, and uh, take a look around. And I can always be reached uh, at bbartelt at littleonline.com. Well, Bruce, thank so you. thanks very much. No, my my pleasure. Thank you again. Um, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Experience by Design podcast. Um, again, you can always find me on Instagram and Twitter at OpenEye Global, and stay tuned for new episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening.